everyone, welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In this first episode, we're speaking with Rune Christensen, the founder of MakerDAO. For those who don't know, MakerDAO is something like the central bank for decentralized finance. Its deposit and lending rates serve as benchmarks for the whole ecosystem, and it issues DAI, a cryptocurrency token that has a soft peg to the US dollar, and really has become kind of like a DeFi dollar. Rune has been in crypto since 2011, so he's had his share of ups and downs and drama. But nothing was as shocking as what he experienced a couple of weeks ago. Ether crashed more than 30% in an hour, and a key part of the MakerDAO system broke down. In this interview, he talks about his initial reaction and the fallout from the crisis. He gets into Maker's future plans, from onboarding Bitcoin as collateral to eventually dissolving the Maker Foundation. Because oddly enough, for those outside of this strange world, many of these projects start with the goal to become obsolete as their communities take over. He also talks about his big vision for the future. But let's start at the very beginning. Can you briefly walk us through how the original idea for MakerDAO came about? Yeah, so that's actually a long time ago, but that happened, right? MakerDAO is one of the oldest projects in, uh, in Ethereum. And um, the way I even got into Ethereum in the first place was that I started off with Bitcoin back in 2011. And um, I was just completely, uh, you know, obsessed with Bitcoin from the very beginning and, and this concept of, like, of self-sovereign finance and, and self-sovereign money. But ultimately, I, I put a lot of money into Bitcoin and uh, earned a lot from that, or rather saw a lot of, of price increase and then saw a lot, a lot of price drops. Mm-hmm. And that experience of, you know, feeling very rich and then suddenly losing it all again made me realize the stability was was necessary in order for the potential of blockchain technology to be realized because mm-hmm. regular people and, and regular businesses are just simply not, you know, they're not going to accept the kind of extreme volatility that the, the speculative crypto um, creates. So from that, I started getting into stable coins back in, in 2014, specifically when the concept was just emerging. And um, the, my favorite one that I got really into was BitShares. Mm-hmm. So BitShares was the first project to invent the decentralized stablecoin. And unfortunately, BitShares uh, uh, tried to do so many things at once, so the project didn't really take off. But then me and, and some of the other community members from BitShares, we uh, discovered Ethereum, and then we decided that we wanted to, be, to implement the core concept of BitShares, which was the mm-hmm. stablecoin, mm-hmm. and then build that onto Ethereum, and then just you know focus on, on the product and focus on, on trying to build the ultimate stablecoin, as we described it back then. Awesome. And I remember, you know, we've, we've talked before for uh, my book on Ethereum and um, you, you mentioned that you didn't really know much about programming, like you didn't have very deep um, development skills and you, you know, still managed to make what's now the you know, most used stablecoin in decentralized finance. So I think that's pretty remarkable and speaks um, well of, of Ethereum itself, just you know, how the flexibility it brings to, to builders. Yeah, I mean, I, th- like, I mean, of course, I don't actually code now, right? So it's, of course, the developers that have actually 
built the system as it exists today. But I think what an interesting observation was that when I got started with Ethereum, I spent like, so my background is uh, economics mm -hmm. and also biochemistry. So I don't have any sort of, of programming background. Mm -hmm. But I spent like a week, after I discovered Ethereum, I spent like a week learning JavaScript and then about a week learning Solidity. And then from that, I was actually able to like code up a fully functional stablecoin prototype with the front end and everything that actually ran on the Ethereum testnet and I could demo it to others. Right. And, and, and that is really, I mean, that is really amazing in terms of like the power that, that blockchain and Ethereum gives to, to developers. But what's really important to point out is that the hard part about building things on blockchain is not getting it to work because that really, that really never takes a lot of time because it is in incredibly simple programs, right? I mean, in a sense, a stablecoin is just changing one, like, uh, right? It's just like changing one number in one place and, and like re removing, like reducing a number from and then increasing it in another account. And now you've done a transaction, right? It's really very basic operations. But the challenge is making it secure. So the challenge yeah. is having a stablecoin and having a, a decentralized application that does not have any sort of unexpected behavior. Right. And we still, for instance, from the DAO hack, right, of, mm -hmm. of um, in the early days of Ethereum, how if you just, if you're careless about building something that just works and then just release it at that point, bad things are gonna happen, of right? Course. And that's why it took five years to go from when I was able to, to code it together quick and dirty with, with, in, within a few weeks, and then until um, the point where we were actually able to release multi-collateral die, like that entire period, is how much it takes to go from a product that works to a product that's secure. Yeah, no, it, and, and it's kind of been the, the common trade-off in, in Ethereum, uh, flexibility for security. If you kind of open up the, the surface area to, <clears throat> to create more, more you know, different types of, of programs, you op also open it up for different types of attacks. So I, I think that's kind of a, a common theme throughout the Ethereum history. Um, Okay, wanted to ask you, you know, uh, how how to describe Maker to someone who doesn't know much about crypto. Is it correct to use the <clears throat> the decentralized central bank analogy? It's it's something that I often use to to explain it. But yeah, we want to hear that uh, description from the founder <laughs> himself. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people like to say decentralized central bank, or some people like to say decentralized bank. Mm -hmm. um, Right, and decentralized finance or decentralized financial infrastructure is also another way to, to think of it. But when using the analogy of a bank or central bank, I think it's very important to, to understand that MakerDAO doesn't implement everything that a bank or central bank does. It implements some of it, right? So yeah. specifically, it builds the core infrastructure and accounting layer that, that, is, you know, that, that also exists in some form within a bank, for instance. But it's just a protocol. It doesn't, you know, MakerDAO itself doesn't have any sort of front end or, you know, mm -hmm. an office or similar, right? And and those aspects are actually critical to to real banks in the real world, right? Because right. it's all about the trust and it's all about like the the um, the relationship that you have with your bank and with your even your governments and so on, right? And that's where MakerDAO takes a different approach, where instead of trying to do everything and trying to sort of build this like end-to-end -end financial experience, I guess you can say, it builds the core level platform and then uh, allows an ecosystem to emerge on top of it, which is often referred to as the DeFi ecosystem nowadays, right? But really also in the long run, we might see 
banks in the real world actually integrate the protocol and use it to improve their own services. So, so ultimately, I, I, I think it's, I mean, it is just very hard for regular people to, to fr- truly understand what the enti- like the scope of the entire protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so, another thing that you can also easily, you know, that also makes sense to focus on is the fact that it's a decentralized stablecoin, right? right? I mean, it's a, it's it's like Bitcoin, but it has a stable price, which is kind of what like I talked about, right? In the early right. days, that's what I found out. This is what Bitcoin's needed. What, what mm-hmm. what's missing with Bitcoin? So that's that's kind of the core value that you're delivering to to users. Um, Okay, so Maker has definitely become the center of Ethereum's decentralized finance ecosystem. What role do you see it having in DeFi in the future? For example, is the goal for DAI to be the main stablecoin used, or are, are there any other um, goals that you you have for for Maker? Yeah, I think that uh, the goal is to right to like focus on one specific task, which is to create an the, the most robust possible financial infrastructure and allow others to build on top of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, um, it's, you know, we don't, it, in the Maker Foundation, for instance, right? And me personally, I definitely don't believe in in uh, maximalism in the sense that mm-hmm. that is going to be the only stable coin, for instance, right? And I actually, on the contrary, I think that there's incredible value um, in the synergy that exists between um, blockchain-based stablecoins, because when you have multiple stablecoins together, um, you really get you get something, I guess, similar to how to, 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 to the, the overall banking system and how you know when you just have one stablecoin, that's that's great. But if you have you have ten stablecoins and they all have a lot of liquidity between each other, it's almost like they're just one singular network where everyone can transact uh, within and. That's really my, my vision for the future is that there's going to be a lot of different assets, a lot of different stable points. Mm. Um, and my hope is that DAI will be as liquid as, as possible against all of the other stable points. So that if you're moving from point A to point B, going through DAI should be a good option, regardless of what kind of, of stable coin that you prefer to use. Mm. So your measure for, for success for Maker will be um, DAI liquidity and ease of use. Of, of DAI and, and Maker more than Maker dominating the, the decentralized finance ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, mm. what it's really all about is financial inclusion. Right? Mm-hmm. So I actually don't really care about, I mean, well, I do care about blockchain and the technology from sort of a theoretical and philosophical perspective. But really what I think it's all about is practical use and real world impact, especially mm-hmm for the people that have been left on the fringes of, of the current financial system, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what I think is the, the promise of blockchain. Unlike a lot of other technological revolutions that have happened already, blockchain has the potential to actually disproportionately benefit the people who are right now at a disadvantage. Where if you look at something like the internet, what happened was you got, we got these massive internet giants, right? And, mm-hmm. and really like the, the elite were really the ones who got the full benefit of this technology. And with blockchain, it's actually kind of like the it's it's harder to see the the, the benefit like the, the the tangible benefit of blockchain today if you live in the in the first world, right? Mm-hmm. But in many places that are on the fringes or left completely out of the global financial system right now, blockchain is already today incredibly um, life changing and, and important for, for many people, right? And we see it especially in Asia, for instance, like that there's a lot of 
of um, just real world trade and things like international um, import and export that's actually running on, on things like Bitcoin and Tether, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, our goal is that, that DAI can become an even more powerful force than, than what we're seeing with these initially with, with Bitcoin, for instance, because it can, it'll just deliver even better um, like security and transparency and performance and, and just options available to, to people all around the world mm -hmm. to transact with each other. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's why I'm also so interested in, in this ecosystem. I think um, because of its very nature, being a global network, um, it, it just it includes everyone. It's it's open to to everyone, and and that is the way to achieve what you're talking about. Just um, a financial system that's truly inclusive, um, and that benefits individuals and, and not big uh, corporations. I, I think it's it's been exciting to see um, this uh, this system grow from from the very early days, but it is still in its very early stages, obviously, and I think. Um, you know, a, 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 a consequence of that is it's it's still not robust enough, and we we're we're, we're seeing um, you know major crises and attacks. Um, and obviously, one probably one of the biggest um, crises you've had at, at Maker happened uh, pretty recently. Um, in you know a couple of weeks ago, when Ether plunged more than thirty percent in an hour, and uh, the liquidation system failed and the one liquidator was able to run off <clears throat> run off with um, more than four million of collateral in in, in ether so uh, obviously this this was a you know huge moment in ethereum and and, and, and DeFi, i think and wanted to to ask you more about this um, first you know i'll get into kind of the market based questions on, on this, but I just wanted to know, um, you know, your, your your initial reaction. Like, I'm interested, curious to, to see how, like, what you were thinking when you saw this happening. Like, it must have been pretty nerve wracking. Were you like completely freaking out? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, of course, the, it all comes back to the, it all really uh, comes from the coronavirus, right, and the mm. that just the complete um, um, crazy world that we now live in, with with uh, lockdowns everywhere, and how it spilled over to capital markets and the oil markets, and then ultimately into crypto. And we, yeah, and then on on uh, March the twelfth, we saw this total collapse of the crypto markets, right? Which um, I, I, I for sure for sure is the greatest test of maker and, and DeFi that we've seen yet really it really went straight to the core of, of uh, testing on, on the very resilience right to see whether these systems were actually going to hold up or whether they were going to to fail completely in this situation and i mean and yeah it was i was shocking for me uh, i mean i've been through a lot i've been in crypto for a long time so i've seen a lot of, of crazy crashes and i've seen the dow hack and um, but yeah this is certainly i think this is the the most shocking thing to happen yet for sure, and uh, but I mean, I think what's important to to point out is that ultimately it was a test of the resilience of Maker and DeFi, mm -hmm. and I, I and I think it's fair to say that that test was passed, right? Because 
Mager still continues to function, right? And it did actually also function correctly um, throughout the entire event. So the, the protocol itself didn't fail. Um, what did happen, as you pointed out, was that um, the Keeper ecosystem, so these third, these external actors that are supposed to help the protocol with liquidating um, risky positions in the system, um, they simply uh, failed to perform as, as what was what expected because of a, a combination of factors, right? The incredible drop in price of the of the price of ETH, and then uh, just a massive congestion of the Ethereum network because everyone was scrambling to make transactions and mm. trying to sell their ETH, and then also buying Dai, right? Everyone was trying to to get into Dai, and that created this significant um, liquidity squeeze in Dai. So suddenly Dai. DAI's liquidity simply dried up completely in this environment. And that ultimately meant that some of those keepers were able to then um, bid on, on liquidation auctions that the protocol was was uh, creating in accordance to how it's, it's designed, right? So it was, it was creating these auctions, mm -hmm. but the keepers would, like some keepers were able to bid on it and then have zero competition on those bids. So even when they bid essentially zero, no one else would, would bid higher and they would actually um, effectively run away yeah, with millions of dollars in, in assets mm -hmm. from the protocol. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that, again, the most important thing is that um, the protocol didn't break during this event, right? So it did function as intended and it suffered a massive multi-million dollar loss. Mm -hmm. But the mega protocol is designed to suffer massive losses like that because mm -hmm. in DeFi, as with all finance, you can never avoid risk entirely, right? You can only um, you, you have to deal with it, and and what the Mega Protocol does is that it, um, when it suffers big losses like this, it then recapitalizes those losses in order to protect the stability of Dai, mm -hmm. right? So it makes so even when there is when there was this five million dollars, or actually more than five million dollars uh, worth of of a shortfall in the protocol, um, uh, the the protocol simply according to how it's programmed, automatically diluted the MKR token, so the governance mm -hmm. token of the system, right. in order to then uh, recapitalize these uh, $5.3 million. And those, so that happened in a separate set of auctions that mm -hmm. concluded about a week after the event. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, I mean, again, another bright, bright spot to this was that that was a very important real-world test of that system because that's actually the first time ever that we saw a recapitalization like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I wanted to ask you about this auction. So uh, that that's already concluded, and <clears throat> you've already been able to heal the um, five million or so of bad debt in in the system, um, and that's great. Um, but uh, one thing that that stood out to me was the the large amount of MKR that Paradigm, uh, the venture fund, bought. Um, so I understand they bought almost 70% of the MKR at auction. And so they, they had already invested in, in Maker last year together with uh, Dragonfly Capital um, and A16C is another one of like the big venture funds that uh, own Maker, which you know speaks really well um, that these uh, amazing uh, uh, funds are interested in, in Maker, but um, at the same time, it does raise the question of how decentralized is the governance system if, you know, these venture funds own together on um, more than 10% of Maker and the foundation owns 25% of the tokens. 
and there's already pretty low participation in governance votes. So um, how, how, how do you uh, balance that? Like how, how do you prevent the, the system from, from becoming um, centralized among you know, a few uh, token owners? Yeah, so from the very beginning when we designed the, the economics and the, like the crypto economics and the governance mechanism of the system, we knew that, so this was the early, I mean, so we in the early groups of, of founders, um, before we even created the foundation, actually, um, we knew that it was it would always be impossible to prevent the emergence of, of whales, as they're called, right, of, of mm -hmm. people holding very large amounts of the tokens. Um, and actually, to some extent, I mean, it's not even a bad thing to have them, because if you have, I mean, hopefully, if it's smart money, then it's actually good to have um, stakeholders with significant skin in the game, as we call it, right, who actually are on the hook for um, to, in order to run the system correctly. Because as we saw with this auction that happened, the system is set up in order to align incentives, right? When when things go wrong and the stability of DAI is at risk, then it is the MKR holders who, um, who take on that risk, basically, who take it upon them to recapitalize the system. And um, But you're right that uh, it's important, like, that, that still doesn't mean that we don't, we know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't expect them to not try to abuse their power if, if we let them, right? So mm -hmm. that is why that there's actually many aspects to the, to make governance beyond just the, the token voting with NPR. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, um, and we call this scientific governance, even though at this stage, I mean, that's a very, that's a very ambitious word to use, right? It, the, the point is that the, the, the decision-making in the community should be based on public and, and verifiable and, and um, you know, um, deliberative arguments, right? And not just, you know, it, like, it's very important that the system isn't just controlled by a popularity contest of whoever has the most MKR, they can just vote for whoever they want. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that that's implemented in practice is that, um, it's basically there is a process for how things even get put up for a vote right so and what that means is that the different types of stakeholders have a different role essentially in the ecosystem so where the large mpr holders um they are very you know their role is to essentially like sign off on decisions so ultimately to, to vote in what we call the executive votes mm -hmm. so basically these big votes where a lot of mkr is needed in order to to sign off on a particular decision and implement it into the system but other types of stakeholders, so that would be smaller MKR holders or even die holders and vault users, they can participate earlier in the process and they basically get to design what is even put up for decision in the first place, right? So what is it that we're making a decision on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this way there's a check and, and balance built into the system. And well, and there's actually a lot more of dynamics like this. Um, and there's even things like um, what you can think of as like a, an, an escape hatch where the system is able to protect itself from what's called governance attacks, so a situation where a large MKR holder simply tries to make some, like tries to create a malicious decision that harms other stakeholders in the system. Right. Um, is that kind of the, the time buffer that you just added uh, so that uh, decisions can't be executed right away after they're voted on? Yeah, actually, exactly mm -hmm. that, right? So, so yeah. the point is that when once an executive <laughs> vote passes, so once a decision has been voted through and is, is, is going to be implemented into the system, there is um, there's now a time delay 
um, through something called the governance security module. That means that there's still, yeah, there's basically still a period of time before the change actually takes effect. And then if the change is malicious or if the change goes against, um, you know, the, the, the process that exists where the stakeholders are supposed to, to work together in good faith in order to reach consensus. And if there is a, if it's clear that, that um, there's something wrong with a, with a decision that has been made and that is completely ignored the process or even has malicious uh, logic in it, then in the worst case scenarios, other stakeholders in the system can, can um, essentially, um, I mean, essentially think of it as like rebooting the system. So they can okay. basically take the system offline um, and then restart it. And potentially, okay. if, if it really was an attack against the system, they can even fork out, so remove the MPR of the attacker. Wow. Meaning that attempting to do such an attack becomes incredibly expensive. Okay. But in practice, I mean, in practice, this is really a last resort option. It's called emergency shutdown. And mm -hmm. um, it's something the community is still actively debating and, and working on. Okay. Um, but, but what's important is that it's, it's kind of like, um, you can almost think of it as the, as the concept of mutually assured destruction in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to, to nuclear weapons and, and the Cold War, right? Where mm -hmm. the fact that this mechanism exists, that means that in the worst case scenario where an attack really is attempted against the system, like the fact that there then is a mechanism that can prevent it and, and, in, and also in the worst case scenario can actually result in the loss of the MKR of the attacker. Mm -hmm. That should prevent the attack from happening in the first place, or like that should even pre prevent such an attempt. So hopefully, right. this is something that'll never actually play out. Mm -hmm. um, but despite that, of course, like I said, the, the community is right now um, beginning in earnest to like to look into the realities of, of all the different types of, of challenges that you know everyone has to be prepared to to handle um, in the long run. Yeah. Um, no, it's crazy. Hopefully you never have to press that red button. <laughs> um, so are, are you considering any other um, updates to the governance system? Like uh, one thing I think is interesting that's been discussed is uh, delegated voting where you have kind of maker um, politicians <laughs> or like, you know, uh, congressmen kind of, you know, voting for other, other uh, token holders and participants in the ecosystem. Is that something you consider or that's, you know, being discussed seriously? Yeah, so actually um, on the topic of governance and decentralization, um, it's actually something, it's always been the plan of the foundation that after we launched Multicollateral DAI, which we finally, you know, after five years successfully launched uh, November 18 last year, then the next step is to focus on improving governance Okay. and even move towards the, the complete dissolution of the foundation. Mm. Um, and so what's interesting, so I know that this, I know that this podcast is coming up next week, um, but actually like right after we're done recording this, mm -hmm. I'm going to, to go on the governance call. So this public call where all the, where the, the core community discusses governance decisions in the maker community. And, and I'll be giving the, the first presentation where the, the foundation is going to lay out the vision for how we think this will be achieved. And oh, so now I can just like give you a really quick um, rundown of it, right? Yeah. Okay. So basically, I mean, so the goal is the foundation is going to dissolve, right? Mm -hmm. MakerDAO is a project that's supposed to exist without reliance on any sort of you know, centralized act, right? That's the whole point of DeFi. So mm -hmm. that's where we want to get to. And in order to get there, what we need is a very robust 
system for for you know end-to-end long-run governance right so the community needs to be able to handle every single aspect of the protocol right operate all processes deal with all emerging risks make all decisions right have all the resources available to them that they need mm-hmm. um and and in practice our vision for how this will be implemented has what we call the three core pillars um of, of long-run governance okay so the first one is um elected paid contributors and domain teams. So what this means are individuals who are empowered by the DAO, by the protocol, to actually receive payment from the protocol in order to perform some sort of work. And Mm. one example of that could be smart contract engineers that are working on maintaining the security of the protocol. Mm -hmm. So that maker governance can autonomously make sure that the, the protocol remains secure and that it's up to date with the latest in, in you know, in, in just in, in, you know, best practices of when it comes to smart contract security. And, and another... Will that, sorry, will that be paid with stability fees or where, where were those uh, payments come from? Yeah, exactly. So that would be maker governance voting in order to use stability fees to fund this. Another example, and I should, and should, I should note that all of these parts of the vision are ultimately the foundation building upon what is already organically happening in the community today. So, so we already have the concept of risk teams. There's mm-hmm. this, there's an interim risk team um, that's that's responsible for um, providing the community with data and insights into making decisions around uh, st- the stability of Dai and onboarding new collateral. Mm-hmm. So, and that's another concept that will need to continue to exist forever and, and be significantly expanded as the protocol grows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically there's there's just going to be a, like more, basically more pieces like this, right? Of okay. security, um, management of the collateral and risk of the system, and maybe even, you know, more, more niche uh, concepts that the foundation is doing today, like something like legal or um, marketing and, and anything like that. I mean, ultimately, the protocol is, is decentralized, right? It's run by decentralized governance and it's up to the governance community to decide exactly what kind of, uh, like, yeah, what they think is, is important, right? right. But, so that's the first pillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, elected pay contributors and donate domain teams, which represents people working for the protocol directly instead mm-hmm. of the foundation. The second pillar is what we are now starting to really roll out, which are maker improvement proposals. Okay. So, the improvement proposals is a formalization of the, a process that exists today uh, that's run on the on the maker forums, where whereby it's possible for the community to to basically um, create proposals that are then voted on, and and there are these there's there is this process of, of what's called a signal request. So basically, people coming to consensus around what is a good uh, decision to make on some particular problem or, mm-hmm. or a improvement to create, and then ultimately. And this is also the, what I was talking about earlier, right? It's a process that begins with the grassroots uh, effort and then in the, it ends up with this executive vote. So it ends up with an unchained vote by the big MKR holders who then either read, you know, either accept or reject the proposal that's been created. Mm-hmm. And the maker improvement proposals is then uh, just a continuation of this to try to make it a lot more powerful, but then also more formalized and more concrete mm-hmm. okay. and uh, make sure that the process is transparent end to end. So there's no like, black box where mm. you don't know how what, like how this part of the process works because it's internal to the foundation or something like right. that right and instead it's going to be all transparent yeah. 
yeah, the fact that it's transparent and formalized also probably will increase participation in, in the process because there's more clarity on, on how it works. So hopefully it will get more people to make these proposals. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point, right? By, by creating these formalized templates and, and frameworks, um, we're already seeing, even now when we're just in the very early stages of rolling it out, we're already seeing how that naturally uh, encourages people to be more constructive because it directs them towards the kind of like the kind of, of proposal and the kind of argument that's that's helpful and that's going to reach consensus in the community mm -hmm. and and steers them away from from things that are simply not constructive because they're not they don't provide the necessary context for instance. Got it. And, and then, then the third pillar. Yeah, the third pillar is what you were talking about. So that's vote delegates. Oh, so okay. that we actually consider that um, in the foundation we consider that essential to also. Uh, improving and really overhauling the dynamics of governance mm. because today uh, the one um, like one of the, the big concerns that people have is that uh, the voting really is dominated by these whales right by mm -hmm. people with, with with large amounts of NPR mm -hmm. and, um, and and one problem is that even though there, there are actually a lot more NPR in the hands of, of smallholders than there mm -hmm. are in the hands of large holders the problem is the smallholders don't have a way to really organize and that's right. what the vote delegates will allow them to do, right? They'll, mm -hmm. be, allowed, they'll be able to pool their, their voting power together. Very cool. The other really important um, advantage that delegates have is that they can try to bridge the gap between the results of votes and then the actual like rational arguments that are made for or against a particular decision. Mm -hmm. That's one of the downsides today is that the whales that vote in the, in the polls um, also, they're kind of like silent behind the scenes. Um, it's not really clear why a particular big voter mm. voted in a particular way. And on the other hand, delegates will be accountable for explaining why they're voting in a certain way. So that should create this this uh, congruence between what's being voted, what's the results of votes, and what's what does it look like the the consensus and the arguments is, is favoring. Oh, that's great. Um... Uh, no, that's a great development. When do you expect these three pillars to be rolled out? Well, so it's going to be a long and, and um, a long process, right? That's going to happen mm -hmm. step by step. With, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be uh, initiated and spearheaded by the foundation, but ultimately will will be decided on. You know, it'll be um, it'll require a lot of input from the community, and ultimately will be decided by the community through voting. Sure. Um, um, yeah. yeah. And so, is the idea that once these three pillars are implemented, the foundation will dissolve? Yeah, that is essentially the, the plan, that hmm. the three pillars, when they're fully implemented, mm -hmm. um, what that, that will, that will um, exist as what we call a governance paradigm. So governance paradigm is, is, is actually, you could say that's a, it's a technical, like it's a specific term that means everything is in place, so all the processes, right, all the major improvement proposals that have formalized all the processes that are necessary for the, for the protocol to, to operate normally and, and deal with all risks and put all of that power in the hands of the community. And then also it, the governance paradigm also represents that there's a complete team of the elected paid contributors um, with the right um, um, authority given through the domain team uh, like the domain team designation that means that there are teams dealing with smart contracts mm -hmm. and there's enough to, to make sure that that's secure mm -hmm. there's enough risk teams to do collateral onboarding mm -hmm. basically everything is in place for the community to be completely 
self-sustaining and, and run the protocol on their own. Right. Um, and when that's the, when that is in place, that is then the moment when the foundation is at that point actually totally pointless, right? Because right. the community can take care of everything itself. So the plan is then that the foundation will begin to gradually dissolve. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be a, a, you know, it's not going to be a sudden event because all of this needs to be gradual and needs to be step by step and it needs to be done carefully, right? We need to learn as we go and make sure that we don't um, just like jump off a cliff or something like that, right? We need to really be careful. Um, but ultimately, uh, I expect that it will play out on a time frame of, of uh, the next couple of years. Okay. And then eventually we will reach the end point where really the foundation is completely gone and the community is completely empowered to run everything itself. Yeah, no, will be it's super interesting to, to see. Um, I'll try to run by the, the next uh, few questions um, uh, quickly. <laughs> so going, going back to the, to the um, uh, auction and uh, you know, debt liquidation crisis, uh, are there any plans to compensate uh, CDP holders who got 100% liquidated? Yeah, so I think, I mean, so to zoom out a little bit, I think that um, one of the, I mean, it's really terrible to, to think about uh, the, all the people that had these massive losses mm-hmm. during this crash, right? And that's always terrible, right? It's always um, one of the really bad things about crypto crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on the bright side, what we saw is that maker governance really was activated and, and sprung to action. And, and you could follow that as it happened on the forum. And um, on the topic specifically of the of the vault holders and who, who um, yeah, just suffered a lot of losses. I mean, ultimately, it was, according, like, it was according to how the protocol was meant to work, right? So the protocol didn't break, but it was just, I mean, it's a very unprecedented and shocking situation. And... Um, on the forum now, the community is discussing what to do um, regarding the people that, that had, you know, the people that were vault holders during this period. Okay, so it hasn't really been decided yet. No, and, and the thing is that, I mean, the thing about DeFi is that it's, you know, it's permissionless and uh, transparent and has a lot of these advantages, but it's also brand new. And ultimately, the fact that there is no, you know, the fact that you don't have to ask a central authority for permission also means that there isn't a central authority who can just decide what happens in unexpected situations, right? It has to be, it has to be organically decided by the community in, in a process that, well, again, is actually happening right now on the forums and, and anyone that's interested in this, they can, they can go and look on the many topics where it's being debated mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, something else stemming from, from this event was that you added USDC as collateral for, for DAI and uh, for those who don't know, USDC is a stablecoin that's backed by uh, dollars held in, in a bank. And this is a little bit controversial for some in DeFi who think um, uh, these types of stablecoins that depend on centralized parties like, like a bank shouldn't be added into a decentralized trustless uh, system. So I wanted to ask you two questions on this. One is, you know, what are your thoughts on on, on on this view and also what are the the next uh, collateral types in line to, to be added yeah so i think what, like first to give some context um what was happening was so this was mm-hmm. during the the major market downturn mm-hmm. uh, everyone was well, a lot of, of people were selling their eth in order to get die and basically everybody wanted to have eth and you know everybody wanted to to um, to use the mega protocol to get stability and hold die mm-hmm. 
um, and not that many people wanted to to um, generate DAI by collateralizing ETH, right? Because mm -hmm. of the, the direction of the market. And um, that actually, that's one of the conditions that led to the, the auctions uh, not, uh, you know, getting these zero bits and and, um, and just like the system behaving unexpectedly, right? And um, adding USDC as collateral at this critical juncture was actually what, how the, essentially how the community rose to action and, and, and really uh, made sure that the event didn't get any worse than it than than what what happened because once you had once USDC was onboarded as collateral, suddenly there was a completely uncorrelated asset that could then be used by the keepers to to generate die so they could go and, and generate die in order to arbitrage the ETH that was mm -hmm. being sold in liquidations without having to take a lot of exposure to the Ethereum price, which they didn't want to do. Right. Um, but on the broader topic of centralized assets as collateral. Um, because I mean, this is actually this is actually a debate that's been going on for a long time, right? And, yeah. and ultimately, it is the fundamental reason why multi-collateral DAI was launched, and mm. and uh, it's, it it actually is the uh, to some extent it's like the fundamental thesis behind Maker and, and the DAI stablecoin, and what makes this different is this idea that for a stablecoin to truly be resilient and strong for the long run. Mm -hmm. It needs to have a lot of diversified and uncorrelated collateral behind it. Mm -hmm. And this is the most, like, th this concept of diversification of risk is the absolutely most important thing to consider when you, if you want to create a, a stable coin. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people make the argument that if you add, let's say, USDC, for instance, then USDC is a, right, it's a, USDC is a centralized stable coin. So that's that's really bad, right? Because Dai is decentralized, and you don't want to want to mingle the two things together. Um, but basically, what's important to point out is that the MPR holders are ultimately ultimately the ones who are responsible for doing risk management, right? So MPR holders vote to add, for instance, USDC and potentially other collateral types, um, and they add them with risk parameters and and uh, debt ceiling, so kind of like relative. Um, you know the relative exposure in the overall portfolio that then tries to hedge out their risk and if they do it wrong they take the loss right they have to right. be they will be diluted um if if there's a big crash because they added the wrong collateral mm -hmm. but but ultimately um from a like when you're in that situation where um you know if, if some parts of the collateral portfolio fails you'll have to you'll have to to to, to pay for that right Mm -hmm. um, then you want to make sure that if one part of the portfolio fails, the other parts shouldn't fail at the same time because that's when things would get really dangerous, right? right. So, so that's why um, adding centralized assets can actually make the protocol more decentralized in the sense that you can spread the risk across many different points of failure. But of course, what's most important is you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's very important that MPR holders don't stop at adding USDC, but actually that you know, for instance, instead of just having USDC, why not have all the different uh, US dollar-based centralized stablecoins and then have less exposure to each of them? So if one right. of them fails, then the other ones maybe will not fail, right? Yeah. But but not but even there, beyond that, it's also a matter of diversifying across jurisdictions, right? So it's so we have real-world assets and centralized assets that aren't just um, you know under the jurisdiction of one country, right? But actually, they're spread up uh, spread out across hundred jurisdictions, right? Mm -hmm. As many pl different places as possible, but always based on how risky that, like, 
like the likelihood that a particular jurisdiction might, for instance, seize the assets or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And I think if you really get to the point where you have thousands of assets that are all different from each other and all have different correlations and risk profiles, and you have those assets spread across, you know, a hundred jurisdictions around the world, all the world's top jurisdictions with rule of law and a stable government and so on. And then on top of that, you have a lot of crypto in there, right? That's a completely different type of asset with a lot of volatility and a lot of, of correlation, but then, you know, no exposure at all to custodians and governments. And I think all of that together um, actually is, you know, that's the, that is the best you can get in terms of stability and safety and, and uh, decentralization and, and reliability for, for regular people to trust regardless of where in the world you are. Yeah. Because what we learned from the event was that, I mean, what we already knew, right? The central thesis, which is if you just rely on a single type of collateral, if you just have one source of stability, if that, you know, that asset suddenly becomes very, very unstable, it doesn't have you know the consequences are are not very nice right and right. that's because then you have you have nowhere to run to if if eth is crashing if you don't have other types of collateral you mm -hmm. can't you know suddenly you won't even have a die being generated mm -hmm. so so you manage the risk of adding centralized assets by um seeing the risk parameters for for each of those specific assets and also diversifying across centralized and, and decentralized assets um Okay, and then on, on the topic of what collateral types are, are next, um, uh, lots of people ask, you know, whether Bitcoin will be will be added, and you know, w when when that could happen. It, it would obviously have to be, I guess, um, a near C twenty token version of, of Bitcoin. But is that something um, the community should expect anytime soon? Well, so that's actually up to the community because what the foundation is doing is we are we are. Um, um, releasing the MIPS framework, so the Maker Improvement Proposal Framework. Mm -hmm. And with that, the first thing that we are focusing on uh, is to make it possible for the community to begin uh, running the collateral onboarding process together okay. with the, the, the interim risk team that has already been elected by the community. So, so they would have to propose uh, like a Bitcoin Ethereum token, um, like a Bitcoin-based Ethereum token, like TBTC or, or, or one of those, I guess, and uh, approve that to be included? Yeah, exactly. So there will be a complete end-to-end -end process, you know, with an application form and uh, multiple steps along the way of kind of like different types of checks and balances, and then ultimately it goes to a vote. Okay. Um, another question that often comes up is, um, will there be or are there any plans for a different type of die that's uh, pegged to to uh, something else uh, other than a, than the dollar, maybe a euro or maybe a basket of, of currencies, like the original plan for for the stablecoin was. Um, yeah, what are the plans in, in this sense? Yeah, so so um, we call it synthetic assets in the foundation, and it's one of the key core, like it's one of the core pieces, core core things on the roadmap. And mm. I'm hoping that it can, yeah, it can be it can be ready as soon as possible because. Oh, cool. But once that is, once the synthetic asset framework is in place, it will mean that the community will again, through the, the maker improvement proposals, be able to decide what kind of new assets, like what kind of new stable coins they want to add. Mm. So that means that they can add euro, they can add um, all the major currencies, mm -hmm. and actually even other types of state, like other types of well, and that's why we call them synthetic assets, right? So mm -hmm. other types of assets. So we could even yes. see things like a gold uh, token and. Mm. 
um, tokens that that represent uh, stock indexes or even something completely exotic like inverse tokens or I don't know a token pegged to the temperature in oh. Sahara or something like that or related to the CO2 levels or something. So there's so much possibility there and it really is just what's so amazing about DeFi is, is how things can like once because we have like the basic technology is now in place in Maker and that means we can now really start to push the limit of the different permutations that you can this kind of technology can take so once this gets started it will very quickly be that a lot of new assets will be added and and then it actually also is the um, I mean it is kind of like a, 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 at least something that's considered very heavily in the community and that is that in the long run it might be that the US dollar will no longer be as prominent this is as it is today mm-hmm. and then you might see that um, a stablecoin pegged to the US dollar will just be, will be just another synthetic asset alongside the euro die and the yen die and so on. They will just be the US dollar die. Hmm. And then die itself might actually unpick from any currency and become potentially a basket of, of global currencies or maybe even pegged to a basket of CPI. And, okay. and, and ultimately that's entirely up to, to make your governance how that will play out. Um, will this uh, framework for synthetic tokens, when, when do you expect that it will, it will be implemented and, and approved? Is it something for this quarter, this year, or what's the, the, the timeline? Um, I can't say that yet because that depends on how it goes with the, the, the things that we're trying to, the foundation is trying to roll out now. Mm, okay. um, but I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be here sooner rather than later. Okay, interesting. Okay, and then um, to, to finish up, uh, we're running out of time. Um, and I want to know, you know, your longer term big vision for, for Maker. And, and you've touched on, on this, um, but, you know, if, if you could say where you see Maker and, and Dai in 10 years and then in, in 50 years. So I'm hoping that 10 years from now, uh, die and and uh, vaults will be used a lot to provide access to financial tools uh, for people in, in you know in, in developing a com- economy so that they can more easily save money and get a return on their savings and mm-hmm. send money around and start businesses pool money together and so on and they even access credit so I'm hoping that there's really going to, that, that maker 10 years from now is really going to be a game changer in terms of access to credit from small businesses who might be able to simply like tokenize, essentially like tokenize their business and then go to the maker governance and say, and basically propose that they get, um, they get uh, credit directly from maker mm-hmm. uh, based on the assets that they have and their business model. And, and that's something today where the big banks, they, big banks don't really provide a lot of credit to, to small business and especially not in, uh, in the developing world. Um, because they're just not set up to it. They're they're designed for big business. They're designed for, you know, the first world, and and they're designed with lots of bureaucracy in mind. And mm-hmm. Maker and and uh, DeFi and and blockchain technology and the power of the internet really has the opportunity to just cut through all of that and instead go direct from the small business, from the individual entrepreneur, and then to the, you know, to the, um, the, the you know the money protocol itself. And so, I think. So tremendous impact on people, right? That could really unlock a lot of efficiency. Sorry, so it won't depend on collateral anymore. It'll be more on the business itself and assets and look more like a traditional credit line? 
Well, actually, this goes back to what we were talking about with um, centralized assets, right? Mm -hmm. So it still would be, it would require uh, tokenized real world assets, right? So it would require um, Maker to be able to accept uh, tokenized versions of something like, um, I mean, it could even be stuck in a small business, right? Or mm -hmm. it could be a letter of credit. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, there needs to be some sort of legal claim on the person or business getting credit that is then considered uh, good enough by maker governance to actually um, allow them to give it risk parameters and to, to give it a line of credit. No, that'd be amazing. Okay, so opening up um, access to credit and just financial access to, especially the, the developing world, um, that's kind of your your 10-year plan. And then, you know, in way into the future, like where do you see um, Maker and, and, and DeFi? I mean, I think in the really long run, it's, it's, it's very hard to predict, uh, mm -hmm. but I guess I, I, I could imagine that DeFi and, and uh, blockchain and stablecoins will become almost like electricity or like the internet in the sense that it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be under the hood of everything and powering everything. You know, we'll have the IoT, autonomous cars, you know, autonomous, I don't know, cleaning robots or something. And they all do these microtransactions to each other. Uh -huh. You can die, or maybe they do microloans when they need to, for some mm -hmm. reason, and they use the Maker Protocol for that. And, and because, I mean, that is what's so amazing about the technology is that it is so scalable. And mm -hmm. if, if we figure out how to, to implement it everywhere, we can do that in, you know, and, and, and we can unlock so much efficiency. Um, but, but also what's interesting is that um, unlike a lot of other technologies, I don't think that the impact will be, like there will be some specific single thing that's going to completely change. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be more like that everything will be a little bit different in that things will be slightly more connected, especially, um, again, you can think of like the IoT, I think is a, is a good example of like how the transfer of value between two parties or two businesses or two, I don't know, autonomous robots or something will be so frictionless that it'll happen in a, you know, it'll, it'll really um, happen at a much more rapid, rapid scale. And I think that will bring, you know, that will make it possible for, for it'll bring people more together and will bring things more together and allow for more like uh, emergent behavior in, in these like networks of, of um, actors working together and doing transactions with each other. Awesome. Um, I love your futuristic uh, and more open vision and it's really been a pleasure chatting. I, I know you need to jump jump off. Um, I could keep with so many more questions for you, but um, it's really been great. I, I really appreciate it, Rune. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thanks so much for joining me in this first episode. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.